0: Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. We have a very special episode today, and who better to produce that than our number one super producer, Mr. Max Williams.
1: Oh, what? Ooh. Ooh. Ta-da! <laughs> it
0: and, is he? Uh, Yeah. Noel, uh, you're Noel. I'm Ben. And uh, you, you, you and I recently watched a film on Netflix called Operation Mincemeat. Hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I I initially thought it was going to be some sort of British baking kind of show situation, uh, but it turns out it was British. But there's very little baking, precious little baking in Operation Mince Meat.
0: Ben, do you know what mince meat is? Hmm. Yeah, mince meat is. Uh, well, you know me, man. I'm a walking garbage can when it comes to food. I eat all sorts You're of stuff. Me both, buddy. Basically, it's like. Um, it's weird to call it meat. It always has been to me because it's. Suet, but then a lot of dried fruit and uh, spices, and I think they distill some spirits of some sort, some kind of boozy thing that cooks down and doesn't have a lot of alcohol in it, uh, do the cooking process, and then you put it in, like, a pastry.
2: Suet? Isn't that just, like, beef
0: juice? Like, like, like beef slime, basically? Uh, Yeah, it's fat. Pretty sure. And, and suet doesn't always have to be beef. It can come from, like, lamb as well. Uh, it's it's specifically, I thought, someone checked me on this, I thought it was a kind of fat around the loins and the kidneys of the animal. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's not that far off from the consistency of aspic. If you've ever had uh, any weird gelatinous 70s kind of dishes uh, with things preserved in, in jelly or whatever, aspic is, uh, you know, there are some really good, if you get, like, If you're into this stuff, which I know is controversial, there's different ways to make it that are more humane than goose pate, but there are different types of pate that sometimes will have a layer of, like, a ginger, kind of, like, fruited aspect on top, and beef suet is not too far from that. But we're not talking about the actual dish, mincemeat, which would be usually served in a pie crust of some kind, a Mm -hmm. mincemeat pie. We are, in fact, talking about an operation carried out by British intelligence that may well have been one of the prime movers in uh, swinging the tide of World War II.
0: Yeah, absolutely correct. And and funny story, they came up with the name because uh, British intelligence at the time had kind of this list of common names that you would pull from. That was really interesting to me, the idea that maybe there were a bunch of guys kind of brainstorming in a room, and they said, okay, where are we going to call this next one? And someone said... You know, maybe they skipped lunch and someone's like, I don't call it mincemeat, you know? But they, they did apparently have a list of approved names. You're right, Noel. This was a big, big deal and it happened in utter secrecy. So we want to talk a little bit today about the real-life events that informed the film you can see on Netflix today. This operation was a result of intelligence agencies always trying to fake each other out. So the British invented a ghoulishly creative way of delivering fake intel in Spain, which was neutral at this time in 1943, and they wanted it to end up with the German forces. And you know, I was thinking, man, we're channeling a bit of stuff they don't want you to know today, another show that we do, and this one is a real-life conspiracy. Weirdly enough, And you can go back and forth on how far they should have leaned into this with the film. Weirdly enough, the entire idea starts with fly fishing, not a euphemism, straight up like cast in the reel, got a little fake fly on there. Yeah, but it
2: also like, you know, was used as a metaphor, right? Like in this uh, document called the Trout Memo, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, that was then presented to a committee called the 20 committee or the committee of 20. And it just shows how deep some of these very clever British quips go with some of these (laughs) uh, project names and code names, because, you know, 20 was not referring to the number of members in the council or whatever you want to call it. It was not referring to the number 20 exactly. It was referring to the Roman numeral 20, XX, meaning double crosses. So it was a Organization that was specifically designed to do exactly what you said, Ben—to fake out other intelligence agencies and governments uh, through elaborate ruses uh, and ultimately deception—and that is is very much what went into the thinking behind Operation Mincemeat. It was a way to send faulty information to the Germans so that they would act on that information, believing that it was true, giving the Americans or the Allied forces the advantage.
0: Yeah, and we owe a big debt to historian Ben McIntyre. Uh, actually, the film Operation Mincemeat is based primarily on on his work. It, it it's nuts <laughs> it's nuts because there's a there are parts in the film where people are saying with all sincerity and there's a real thing they're saying, "Yes, I know so and so." He thought I was a double agent when I was a triple agent. Keep your eye on that one. And it's like, how many times do you go with this song and dance, of uh, this weird tango of who's who's betraying whom? Uh, This guy named Rear Admiral John Godfrey, here's why it starts with fly fishing. He digs fly fishing. He's super into this trout memo, and it's some Sun Tzu Art of War stuff because the metaphor is, you know, just like you said, they love a metaphor. So the metaphor is that you can deceive your enemy the way that someone fishing can deceive a fish. We pulled a quote here just to give you a a sense of it. The trout fisher casts patiently all day. He frequently changes his venue and his lures. If he has frightened a fish, he may give the water a rest for half an hour. But his main endeavor vis-a-vis to attract fish by something he sends out from his boat is incessant. Incessant.
2: I love that. There's a great scene in the movie where um, this guy presents the Trout Memo to Winston Churchill. I don't remember the, I didn't know the actor who was playing Churchill. It's obviously like a really, you know, sought after role of, you know, some of the best actors have portrayed Churchill, especially specifically uh, Gary Oldman, you know, and like an unrecognizable amount of prosthetics. <laughs> um, but this dude did a really kind of not over the top it's the easy one to like chew the scenery with because Churchill was a real character and known for these fiery speeches and turns of phrase but <laughs> the guy said he I forget who it was it was because one of I think his assistant or one of the guys who was in this kind of cadre of, of uh, military brass that were walking around with uh, Churchill was Ian Fleming the author of, you know, the James Bond novels. And he mm-hmm. based his uh, James Bond characters on people that he actually knew and some of the operations that he actually participated in. But the point is, the guy says to uh, Churchill, have you heard of the trout memo? And Churchill goes, I despise fish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds then like then Churchill. Just, yeah,
2: and, then he, and then he walks away, and then he says something like, they're describing the trout memo as describing these very fantastic and elaborate methods of deception. And Churchill replies, like, you know, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm fond of the the elaborate and fantastic. It's much better than the mundane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, and then he says, but, you know, in order to pull off something elaborate, it has to be beyond foolproof.
0: Yeah, that's the thing. And this, this paper, this memo, builds on this fly-fishing metaphor. It lists, all in all, 54 different what-if ways that the United Kingdom could try to deceive their enemies, the Axis forces, just the same way a fly fisher could... uh, Like, they lean into it, is what we're saying.
2: Uh, (laughs) Wouldn't this have been kind of an early codification of, like, Spycraft, like, in the UK?
0: The great game had been continuing apace for a while. I would say it's fair to call this kind of part of the dawn of modern tradecraft or Spycraft. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, so... They're, they're deep in stuff. They're, uh, as corporate America says, they're building the plane while they fly it. Today's story is not about the entirety of the Trout memo. You basically got the gist, folks. It's about the 28th suggestion in that weird paper, the idea of getting a dead body, planting fake intel on that dead body, and then just sort of dropping it somewhere where German intelligence will find it. And they didn't make up this idea, by the way. They got it from a novel because uh, Admiral Godfrey and Ian Fleming were working together. Godfrey loved fishing. Fleming loved fiction. And, you know, I think about it sometimes, like generals, admirals, they're very, very busy people, the top brass. So how do you communicate with someone like that? You make it something relatable to them. So instead right. of saying, instead of saying, "Hey man, let's let's start using dead bodies to trick people," he opened with, "You know what war is a lot like, Admiral? It's like fishing." And he's like, "Oh, I like fishing." Yeah, I can I can I can wrap <laughs> my around that. I can get behind that. It's
2: interesting though. We we were talking about this on our group text thread. There is a kind of a running gag in the in the movie where basically, like, everyone is a writer. Everyone's working on a novel. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, several of the of the top brass-type characters are, in fact, working on novels, and it becomes this kind of, like, fun running joke in the movie. But, yeah, it's true. They got the idea from a novel. I don't recall which one. I don't know if that comes up necessarily in the movie, but um, it is, maybe. It sounds like the kind of deception you would see as the twist in, like, a detective novel, like Poirot or, like, you know, Sherlock Holmes or something like that, right? so think about it the idea is to pass off this body as a genuine soldier a genuine you know human being who died in the um you know course of serving their country and you know planting false information on them so that the germans would find it in the hopes that they would believe it to be true. They knew they would do an autopsy and make sure that the body was in fact, you know, because there's all all this paranoia at the time. You know, they would not accept anything at face value. So they had to go about this in the most meticulous way you could imagine. Like, they created a backstory for this person. We'll get into the details of that. But first, before any of that fun stuff, which all involves, like, make basically, like, writing stories, it's like a story Bible. You're creating, you know, a living, breathing human being that is actually entirely fictionalized. You got to find a body first, a viable specimen that isn't too old, that hasn't been mutilated in any kind of way, that, like, you know, it looks like it was someone that just went down with their plane and drowned.
0: Yeah, and you have to do it in utter secrecy. So you're playing that Goldilocks game for the perfect, perfect corpse, basically. And you have to do this without letting too many people in on the plan. So Admiral Godfrey is pretty hot to trot about this trout memo thing because he needs a solution and fast. He is aware of an upcoming plan, a different operation called Operation Husky. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile.
2: You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me?
0: (laughs) You're right, Noel. It's kind of like when you find out you've been paid a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk,
2: text, and data for 15 bucks a month.
0: The Allied forces are planning to invade the island of Sicily, you know, off of Italy, and they were worried that it would be tough to pull this off. They said, okay, we could invade Greece, we could invade the Balkans, what What should we do?
2: I think the issue with Sicily was that it was just a no-duh kind of move, right, mm-hmm. where it was just the obvious weakness or the obvious you know, point of entry and anyone that they said a couple of times, like anyone with a map could tell you that. So they were going to be expected. It would have been the most obvious place. So that's a problem because it's like, even if it makes the most sense, your enemy also knows that and they're going to act accordingly. So the point is they, they needed to figure out a way to make the Germans believe they weren't going to do the thing the Germans knew they definitely were going to do. How
0: do you do that? Right, right, exactly. And and that's a good way to put it, man. So they already kind of knew, and history would prove this, they already kind of knew that Axis Powers had pretty insidious intelligence capabilities. There were tons of spies embedded in any agency you can imagine, and they knew that if Axis Powers anticipated the obvious thing, Operation Husky, because they already did the North Africa campaign, so it's not too far to for their resources to move they knew that if the germans were anticipating this it would become a bloodbath it would probably fail winston churchill who was basically drunk off the success of the north african campaign loki
2: possibly also actually drunk too yeah i was going to
0: say loki just in general kind of drunk and <laughs> he knew he knew uh in his calculus that britain could probably not invade and retake France at this time. They needed uh, more runway. And he said, okay, look, we can maybe, he was skeptical at first, but he said, we can maybe take these North African forces through the Mediterranean into Italy, which they loved calling the soft underbelly of Europe. Like they keep calling it that. It's weird. You know how it is like when you're hanging with your friends and you make up a catchphrase and everybody sort of gets into it.
2: Is that sort of a ding against the Italian people implying that they're somehow like soft and, 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 you know, luxuriating in their fine wines and cheeses?
0: I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that part out. But yeah, they lead, they leaned into that as well. So everybody's like fly fishing is war. Soft underbellies. Let's invade Sicily. And to do this, they, they're not sure if it's actually going to happen yet. This story hinges on three people. We're gonna introduce two of them now. Military officers, Charles Chomley and Ewan Montague. Chomley is not spelled, (laughs) not spelled the way it sounds.
2: Chalmondeley, it sort yes. of like reminds me of some counties in Georgia. We've got one called that looks like on paper Talia Farrow, but it's apparently pronounced Tolliver or something You're like right. that. Yeah. Uh, for the long, I mean, until I heard them say in the movie when I was reading about this, in my mind, I'm saying out loud, Chalmondeley. And then when <laughs> in the movie they, they they start calling this dude Chomley, and I'm like, Where's Chalmondeley? <laughs> He's my I was, favorite. Yeah
0: right there with you. It's kind of like, and and no offense to uh, our good friends in Massachusetts, it's kind of like Worcester. You can't get mad Mm -hmm. at people for guessing Mm -hmm. wrong on that one. But here we are. The 28th suggestion, Chomley and Montague run with it. The lure, in this case, is a corpse. Not too fresh. Not too stale, I guess. Yeah, but Goldilocks corpse. Right. And it has to be dressed as You're kind of average, everyday soldier with that intel. Uh, And they originally wanted the fake intel to just be in the guy's pockets. The whole bit, the whole trick is, their idea will be that German intelligence in Spain finds these papers and take them as gospel. If everything works out, enemy forces are going to find this dead guy, they're going to act on that secret info, and they're going to move their forces away from Sicily, and this all takes time, right? They can't just, you know, pop back over. They're going to move a significant amount of the German military and Axis military forces away from Sicily, then that exposes the soft underbelly of Europe, and they're, you know from then on it's just like god save the queen great job everyone oh
2: wait i think i get it so this, a soft underbelly is a point of weakness right like in uh, the hobbit you know how like Smog had that one little area that like was like what do they call it like naked as a a snail without its shell or something like that mm. i think maybe that's what they're referring to uh, sicily as like just a weak point so a soft underbelly implying that like even if everything else is armored, you know, that, that if that soft underbelly is exposed, then that could be like a kill shot for all of Europe.
1: And to kind of jump in here, I mean, you got to think about this part in 1943, like Germany is still kind of like an unstoppable machine, while like Italy and all their operations are just like tripping over themselves and base yeah. planting.
2: Yeah, and eating cheeses, fine cheeses and
0: wines. Yes. Like, yeah, they, they were, were not doing very
1: China. well in this war.
0: No, they weren't. That's that's very, very true. And this this fake-out itself is not a super original idea. Just the idea of faking people with uh, bad intel. It's happened before. It's happened so often in the world of intelligence that by this point, it had a street name. It was known as the Haversack Ruse. But Chomley and our boy Montague, they need a fresh body. And uh, Chomley has his own spin on the trout memo. He calls it the Trojan horse. Uh, shout out to Dennis Smith, author of Deathly deception the real story of Operation mincemeat. Thanks to Smith we have Chomley's real life description of this Noel I know we both love uh, leaning into a real a real chewy British accent. you want to give this one a shot man? Oh why not let's see
2: A body is obtained from one of the London hospitals. The lungs are filled with water and documents are disposed in an inside pocket. The body is then dropped by a Coastal Command aircraft. On being found, the supposition in the enemy's mind may well be that one of our aircraft has either been shot or forced down, and that this is one of their passengers. Love it. <laughs> ten, ten. Ugh, all the Brits out in the audience are cringing right now, and I am here for it. I'm here Sorry. for it. I love <laughs> all of you so much.
0: Yeah, and, you know, we would love to. we would love to do our own adaptation of Operation Mincemeat and Maxnell? maybe at the end, we can, we can figure out who we're going to cast as ourselves.
2: Well, uh, speaking of cast, I got, I got to say and point out, um, this movie, really great cast, Charles McFadden, or McFadden, mm-hmm. who, who I think we all, who, who plays chomley i think we all know him as uh tom Wamsgams from succession fabulous show and he's another one of these british actors who like i just would never have thought was british i mean i have no reason to 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 worry about it or to think about it but he just pulls off that american accent so well that does not always go the other way around when it no. comes to american actors doing british voices i would not call myself nor i think you uh an actor per se you've done you've done more acting than i but um as evidenced by our uh, <laughs> our butchery of the uh, of the English accent, but it's really funny when you have, like, you know, a Kevin Costner or something vaguely attempting to phone in <laughs> the slightest of British accents that sort of comes and goes, you know? The
0: first 10 minutes of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves slap, uh, I don't really know. Oh, it's great. The escape the from that prison? It. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's it. very dope. Good. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I would also say, just to, uh, to throw a uh, an olive branch slash bone to our fellow British ridiculous historians. Yes, we know Americans are the ones with the accent. You guys were there also first. True. Everybody gets it. So, <laughs> even Max is nodding solemnly. He's like, mm, I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> okay so i want to just i, I just want to paint the picture here so max uh i not want to put you on spot but max thought about it when i said that and then leaned forward toward his mic and then kind of gave a little smile like lean back like not yet not yet
1: yeah sometimes i just like am i do i have the energy for this fight right now do i really have the energy for this ben and this was one of the moments i leaned back and i was just like no nah. I don't. I don't.
2: I will not die on this hill today, my friends. I will live to fight another. But Ben, didn't they have like a special hookup like to get these bodies? Like they had like a body guy, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They have a body guy eventually because first Chomley pitches this to his buds at MI5 and the 20 committee. we're running all this double agents and they're not super convinced it's like November 1942 and they essentially tell him dude there's absolutely no way this will work but I like where your head's at I like the way you think about things and we need to attach this you know keep go back to the drawing board keep your original idea let's punch it up and that's when Ewan Montague comes in. He's naval intelligence. He's in charge of counter espionage and he's going to work with Chomley. They go through the details and then they get a due date. The top brass says this invasion of Sicily, Operation Husky, has to happen by July of 1943. So tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, find us a dead body. Uh, and and uh, it, it's weird because everybody kind of knew that everyone was spying on each other. They didn't even kind of know this. This is the only way they were able to pull this off. But they were trying to figure out what Adolf Hitler thought. Adolf Hitler was never a particularly talented strategist. And he was really, really focused, not so much on Sicily, but on the Balkans, because Germany was not a resource-rich country. If the war machine that was running through Europe was to continue then they needed copper, oil, you name it, all sorts of resources from the Balkans. Without it, their war effort would collapse. So so the Allies go through this whole dog and pony show. They invent another fake operation called Operation Barclay. It's meant to convince Germany that the Allies are going toward the Balkans. They made up a fictional military formation. They did a bunch of fake operations in Syria. It's like real look-at-me stuff. And... Just like you said, Noel, the whole time, our guys, Chomley and Montague, are like the resurrection men of the Middle Ages. They're searching for that body. They said, okay, yeah, no, we've decided it's fine to steal a body, dress it up, and throw it somewhere. We don't have a lot of time to wax philosophic. Uh, let's make the corpse look convincing. You got to work on a backstory, but also these guys are not experts what death looks like. And like you said, They're not the type of guys who walk around saying, oh, you need a body? I'll get you a body. Wait, you need it by four? They don't know.
2: No, they don't know. They end up connected with somebody at like a a morgue of some kind, I believe, right? Like uh, they have direct access to. So they had to make the the scenario, uh, you know, under which this person's body was found believable. So it couldn't be like some sort of you know, grisly death, you know, where there was like mangling or mutilation of any kind. It needed to be a body with very few marks on it. It would have been someone that had gone down on a plane, presumably crashed into the ocean, the open ocean, uh, and then drowned. And then, you know, I was wondering, would they have then, you know, looked for the plane to confirm? But, you know, Max and, and Ben uh, off air, pointed out that uh, it just would have been too much, too too many resources would have been required to do that there were other ways they could have confirmed the uh, the validity of this this person's you know um, credentials and if this was a real british soldier so the body they got was a guy who had recently been discovered um dead of from ingesting rat poison mm-hmm. in a warehouse um mm-hmm. presumably a suicide um, there certainly are scenarios where maybe it was accidents. You know, he accidentally ate rat poison or it would, or he got mixed into his rations because this was a time of super austerity. We, I kind of forgot about that until watching this and this, this film remembering that like, you know, the blitz was was uh, just over the horizon every single day, so it was like there there was power outages. You know, people' life did go on. And there certainly were high society things that took place, but in general, the general population was eating like you know spam and like rations and like you know um, what do you call those things MREs and stuff, right?
0: Yeah, food was being rationed. It was a serious concern, and a lot of people were dying. So it, it's weird then from Chomley and Montague's perspective. Uh we'll call them the Chomster and Monty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, okay. Them. So so the Chomster and Monty are in a weird situation because they're saying this is a huge war. There are bodies everywhere. How come <laughs> how come we have to search so so ardently for the right one? They get helped by uh with two people. One is a pathologist named Sir Bernard Spilsbury. uh, And he says, all right, here's how you make it look like someone died the right way. He pointed out, and I didn't know this, that people, when they die in plane crashes over water, are often going to die of shock instead of drowning. And that means their lungs might not necessarily fill up with water. And then he had a hot take. I'm I'm not a pathologist myself. Here's what he said. He said, you know, if we're talking about Spanish people finding them, Spanish folks are all Catholic, and Catholics don't like doing postmortems unless it's a really big deal. So we can kind of get away with a body that's died in any number of fashions. And, you know, it, it could be anybody's guess, especially if the body's been in the ocean for a few days. So that's what leads them to hook up with their resurrection man. Their corpsman. Uh, he's a coroner mm-hmm. named Bentley Purchase, January 28th, oh, 1943.
2: Yeah. The Britishness of these names just delights I know. Me to no I'm so indious. They sound like characters in Toast of London or something. It's mm-hmm. great. Bentley. Oh, Ray Purchase. That's why. Ray bloody Purchase. <laughs> right. Bentley, Bentley Purchase. Uh, if anyone is I mean, I'm sure our British listeners are intimately familiar, but um, the new season of Toast is, uh, he goes stateside, Toast of Tinseltown. It's just a delight uh, with Matt Berry. He's one of my favorite human beings in the world. So this His music's good too his music's great he makes these very non-ironic kind of I mean, maybe they're a little ironic but uh i would say pretty straight kind of like 60s psychedelic folk records that are like super good he's got one called kill the wolf and another mm-hmm. one um and the covers are great they're like him posing with like a like, like a pheasant, you know yeah, yeah so so good but in any case uh yeah they've like to your point ben they found this corpseman um who was the coroner at a, a, a medical, you know, a, a government morgue, essentially. And he's like, I got the guy for you, the dude I was talking about, who was a not well-off person who had st- suffered from some mental illness, had been on the streets. In the film, we later see a family member of his kind of surface. But this is a guy named Glendwear Michael, mm-hmm. uh, another fabulously British name. That actually sounds almost like uh, Welsh, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. with the with the W and the R. But his body looked good. Uh, There are some really fun, macabre bits in the film, though, because you do see them trying to pose this dead body in like his military garb for like they need to do like an ID badge photo. Uh, And, you know, a corpse, a corpse doesn't really pose, you know, and there's some, one particularly amazingly macabre shot where they try to make him smile and it just, yeah. it looks great. Whatever they did to make, I don't know how they did that exactly, with the way the body moves, it must be prosthetics, but it looked like something out of Night of the Living Dead, um, but it was just, you know, they're kind of just like fumbling with it and his head keeps flopping over and stuff, so they realize, okay, this isn't going to work, we need to, now we've found a body that fits the bill, now we have to find a live body that somewhat resembles this man, so we can get a photo um, to have you know, on him as his military ID. By the way, they dubbed this
0: character, this creation, Major William Martin. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Right. Earlier I said there are kind of three main characters of this story. Glendware Michael, known as Major William Martin, is our third man. This feels like a noir reference. Uh, You can find a photo uh, just what you're describing you know, on online, if you wish, ridiculous historians, it is grisly be warned. But it's off to the races. They've got the documents. They've they've, you know, habeas corpus. They have the body. And on April 30th, 1943, they take action because Bentley Purchase has told them, look, I can keep this guy on ice, but at best I can give you three months or else he will have just decayed too far to be useful. So. That's why they ship them off then in April. And they still got that July ticking time bomb there, that deadline. The captain of a submarine called HMS Seraph has his crew push this body into the sea. And they push it in the direction of the tide and they actually use the submarine's propellers to help move the body in what they hope is the right direction. I want to shout out the captain of that sub, Lieutenant Norman Jewell, who had the decency to stage something like a funeral service. He read the 39th Psalm, uh, which begins talking about the power of silence. And that's the only funeral that Michael actually gets. The body washes ashore on the Spanish coast near a city called Huelva. And this is exactly where they wanted it to go. Because they knew, right, even though Spain was like, quote unquote, neutral— Everybody knew the British spies were there, allied spies, German spies are there. And they said, okay, just to like preserve this so that the papers are still legible. We can't put it in this dude's pockets. We have to put it in a briefcase. So they attach a briefcase to him. And it seems like What's
2: the amazing term they used for pocket trash? I think it's like wallet litter.
0: (laughs) Something like that.
2: (laughs) Something like that. I really like it. There's so many of these bespoke little kind of like niche terms that they throw mm-hmm. around in, in this film that are that are a lot of fun. I, I'm I'm serious. You know, just just to, to just to put this out there, Netflix did not sponsor this episode. We just genuinely liked the movie and thought it was worth talking about, and it gave us a topic that we hadn't really thought about that we hadn't done. So definitely go check out the movie. I don't think we're spoiling too much of it, even if you know the story. It's still the dramatization. There's definitely a lot of schmaltzing all this stuff up uh, for oh, yeah. the purposes of, of, of cinema. And I honestly think they don't ever go too terribly far. A couple of things made me cringe a little bit, like a, a bit of a overdone love story angle. But in general, I think we all three quite
0: enjoyed the film.
1: Jason Isaacs is amazing.
0: <laughs> we were talking about that off air, yeah. And I love, I love Colin Firth. So, Colin, if you're hearing this, man, great job. Great job, dude. And I mean,
1: Jason Isaacs, if you're hearing this, I love you. (laughs) He's dreamy, man. Look at those baby blues. God, you could just swim in them. They're so piercing. As a man with piercing blue eyes, Uh I can appreciate piercing blue eyes. Uh Name got me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: There we go. Failed it. All right, Max, we're going to see if we can get you and Jason to hang out together. You
2: know, oh, he was in The Death of Stalin, which is another movie that fantastic. I think uh, 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 ridiculous historians would absolutely love if you haven't seen mm-hmm. it. That is a cool movie, and another really fun dramatization of some really heavy historical stuff, but played completely straight, where it's like, nobody has a Russian accent in the movie. It's all just no. like everyone's <laughs> themselves,
0: and it's Steve great. Buscemi is just Steve He's Buscemi. just Steve Buscemi. It's wonderful. <laughs> right? that's, that's American acting, you know, but if you were a German spy there in Spain and you saw this, these papers, then they would look legit because it's a very clever, counterfeiting move. The people who made the fake papers are the same people who make the real papers. right? So they're making their own counterfeits. You would not be able to tell the difference without more information. A fisherman finds and retrieves quote-unquote Martin's body, and then, of course, it makes it to German intelligence in the city. They look at this and they say, holy smokes, that's where the Brits are going. They're faking us out. You know, Sicily's too obvious. They're coming for Greece and Sardinia. We got to get moving. I mean, I also want to
2: make sure we give credit to the other members of the 20 who, you know, trumped up all of this incredibly detailed backstory for this man. Uh, it was really like, you know, writer's room. I mean, it was uh, no wonder the writing and, you know, being a novelist, such a theme in the movie, because these people were responsible for creating believable fictions. They gave him a love interest named. Uh, what was it, guys?
0: Pam. Mm-hmm. Pam. There's a snapshot of his fiancee. On his person.
2: Mm -hmm. And they make a point to like, no, no, no. The picture of Pam goes in his breast pocket because he keeps it close to his heart. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. You know, there's a love letter that he keeps on him as well. And also, I believe, a receipt for a wedding ring. Yep. You know, so, like, it was one of these things where it's like, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, the love letter says something like, oh, it it's such a shame that we were to meet during the war or else we'd surely be married by now. And it's all really, it goes through all these revisions, too, where, like, mm-hmm. you know, all of the MI6, MI5, Churchill's office and all of that, they all get their hands in the pie, kind of rewriting and, uh, and second-guessing everything. But at the end of the day, all of this stuff is found along with these documents in this case that tell this tale, right? Mm-hmm. But in the most kind of obfuscating ways, it wasn't. It would, it would have taken them a minute to kind of have to figure out what was going on. And not only that, they then continued the ruse by using unsecured lines they knew were being monitored by German intelligence and saying how worried they were that their man had been found and of, of the, the sensitive nature of the papers that he was carrying.
0: Right. Yeah. It was, a, it was a huge deal. There's a lot of acting there too, because they, he also has like a letter from his father, ticket stubs. You can tell he bought a fancy shirt recently, a hotel bill, all this stuff. And they really, really, really put some work into making it plausible. And I would argue that the communications that were, you know, being monitored were probably the clincher for German forces. Right, Because if this guy was carrying secret papers, he's this important, then, of course, British intelligence will worry about him. If they hadn't done that little part of the song and dance, then Germany may have figured out the ruse. But it worked. It seemed successful. Invasion of Sicily began on July 9th. It went until August 17th. The German military because they fell for this con game, had already moved a a big part of their forces to Greece. This would prove to be the first foray in the Italian campaign, also known as the liberation of Italy, continued till 1945, leading to the death of Benito Mussolini, which is still... Kind of mystery. Uh, Historians will debate the official narrative about that. You remember Benito Mussolini, fellow ridiculous historians. He was that guy who, among other things, was super into the idea of wearing milk. I'm sorry? Wearing milk. Benito Mussolini, he's the wearable milk oh, guy. Oh, right. Also the wearable dictator. milk guy. No, yeah. I'm remembering now. It was like <laughs> a
2: it was like a more sustainable kind of plastic. Essentially, right. with like it almost was like think of craft singles or something that you could like, you know, stitch together and cover your body with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. So check out that episode. I think we all had a blast on that one. And at this point, we have to ask, what can we learn from this? I mean, Operation Mincemeat shows us kind of the ethical quandaries of the greater good. And also, Glendware Michael had no informed consent. He didn't have any say in his second posthumous identity.
2: Yeah, and in the film, I I, I don't know how dramatized this was, but his sister, I don't remember how she gets wind of it exactly, because it was so hush-hush, but she comes into the office and, like,
1: you know, makes a big fuss and says, uh, you know
2: uh God, i think you know, she went to
1: the coroner because you know there's a lot of people like who didn't understand where the body went that and makes stuff. sense somehow she ended up
2: in the presence of our our main characters you know doing a shame on you type situation and like how poor you know Glendwear never had a say in this and all the you know because i mean these are deeply religious people and like you know the idea of what they're doing is desecrating a corpse you know oh, like yeah. uh, i mean there, there's a scene in the movie when the when the the Spanish do get a hold of the body, and they do do that autopsy. It is foul; like they're like pulling these guts out. They look like freaking, you know, sausages. It's a really, and then like one of the reasons they didn't go deeper into conducting the autopsy to see the cause of death was because it was just so foul-smelling. You got like one Spanish officer like vomiting in the scene. Mm-hmm. Another macabre piece of you know cinema. There's there's a couple moments like that in the movie, but. It is one of those weighing kind of situations where, yeah, they know what they're doing isn't great, but it was it was like the only thing they thought would actually, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, save the world. It was World right. War II, and and you're right, Max. I mean, the Nazis were a killing machine. They were a precision-engineered killing machine just, like, ripping their way across Europe. And if Hitler had had his way, he would have taken it even further than that.
0: Mm, yeah, and and also you know, there's so many conundrums with this, ethical, philosophical conundrums. Yes, Mincemeat played a role in the ultimate Allied victory of World War II, but it's also important to remember that when the invasion of Sicily happened successfully, Allied forces were committing war crimes against innocent Sicilian citizens. And that's, that's a story that doesn't often get told. But what we're seeing is, Creativity under desperate circumstances, not for nothing, is necessity called the mother of invention. And when driven to extreme means, people who consider themselves the good guys will do very shady things. So check out Operation Mincemeat. We thought it was a fantastic adaptation. Again, it's based on some great work by the historian Ben McIntyre. Ian Fleming plays a role and still went on to create the James Bond novels, as you said, Noel, pulling a lot from real life. This is just a wild one. I can't wait to I can't wait to hear more about obscure, weird operations.
2: Completely. And Ben, we, we sort of scratched the surface of this earlier, but um, it was, in fact, Ian Fleming who wrote the Trout Memo and uh, the idea for, you know, the body came from, you know, a detective novel. Like, uh, again, we don't know exactly which one, but it was specifically a noirish type detective novel where you know, this would have been like a, a ruse of some kind perpetrated by a criminal to cover their tracks, you know, or like a twist in like a drawing room murder mystery, you know?
0: Yeah, it was um, it was a book by a guy named Basil Thompson. But yes, we saw fiction become fact. This is such a nuts story, and you know, I don't know. Are you guys World War II history buffs at all?
2: I'm I, i I'm a fan. I, I wouldn't say I'm enough to consider myself a buff, but I know enough to be dangerous, I guess. But uh, I definitely find it fascinating because, I mean, it was such an all-encompassing conflict that really just, you know, kind of came on the tails of World War One and so many things that connected to, and uh, it really was something that could have absolutely just changed the course of civilization, you know? Um, so this was a, a kind of, like, winner-take-all kind of gambit, and they they won
1: because it worked. Yeah, no, I, I I consider myself a World War II fan, not a buff. I mean, most of it comes from, you know, watching Band of Brothers on repeat from, like, age 12 to age 27. So I'd probably say that's where my love of World War II came from. But to Noel's point, I mean, it is just such a, I don't know, just massive part of history, especially, like, The culmination of things beforehand and to what we are still going through nowadays. So I like looking at it in that way.
0: Totally. Agreed. And uh, we hope that you enjoyed this exploration as well. Fellow ridiculous historians, let us know what some of your favorite strange stories from times of war are. We can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, thanks so much to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Thanks as well to Alex Williams, who composed this slap and bop. Christopher Asiotis, who actually is the one that uh, brought us this idea in the first place and hipped us to
2: this movie, Here in Spirit, soon to be here in the digital flesh. That sounds weird. That sounds like some kinky Stephen King. It's like a 90s sci-fi though, film. Digital yeah, flesh. Exactly. Digital flesh. Long live the digital flesh. Who else? Eve's Jeff Coates, also oh, here yeah. in spirit. Miss Eve, she's the best. Uh, and thanks to you, Ben, this one could have been a real downer, but I think we uh, we navigated these these choppy international waters um, with uh, with grace and humor and terrible British accents.
0: Yeah, man. Agreed. Back at you. And what would this show be without terrible accents? It certainly wouldn't be ridiculous. Which is the whole reason we started this crazy thing in the first place. That's true.
2: And we'll see you next time, folks. even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW route void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin.